Hello, welcome to All Beings. This episode, as always, is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law, and by Birdie Scrubs, the most comfortable medical apparel on the planet. Today, I have the delight of speaking with Mrs. Melanie Sears, RN, MBA, PhD, and Tantra teacher. Uh, we have a delightful conversation. We talk about something that shouldn't have been revolutionary, basic kindness, honesty, and empathy, but was in fact quite revolutionary. Um, Melanie uh, spent many years working in the psychiatric hospital, uh, found that Many of the caregivers there fell short of their potential and uh, instead of leaving the system, tried to change the system by writing a book called Humanizing Healthcare and subsequently writing some workbooks that help people implement the tools that she outlined in Humanizing Healthcare. So I have uh, said quite enough um, by way of introduction, but I know you will enjoy this conversation with Melanie Sears. So here you go. Enjoy. Hi, Melanie. Uh, it's a delight to have you. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. It is entirely my pleasure. So um, you have uh, you have a lot of letters behind your name. I was I was doing a little bit of research, and it's at, at last the last the last time it was posted, it was RN, MBA, and PhD, and there's probably other numbers since then. Um, letters since then, rather. Uh, so, was this a was this a linear path to PhD, or did you change directions along your along your course? Well, I think whenever I got didn't know what to do with my life, I would go back to school. So, um, I got my RN when I was in my twenties, and I was a registered nurse for many years, and I always wanted to see what else was out there. So, I got my bachelor, my master's in business thinking that I could get a well-paying job, support my kids better, because um, nursing where the hours were all over the place and it was really difficult. And uh, I couldn't really get a job with my business degree. Everybody saw my resume and said, oh, well, you're a nurse. Hmm. And um, so then I said, well, if I'm ever going to go back to school, I'm going to do it in a subject I really like because uh, business wasn't really my thing. So uh, in my 50s, I decided to go get my PhD in transpersonal psychology. Wow. And um, I figured it was something that I was really interested in and that I would enjoy doing and it, it would give me something to do. Tell me, so, what, tell me yeah. what transpersonal psychology is specifically. Well, it just has to do with the whole person, the, the spiritual aspects and the... Uh, even the um, the the um, all the aspects of the person, the spiritual, the psychological, the emotional. Hmm. Um, that sounds like something I'd like to study. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. I went to Maui. I lived on Maui for eight months, and I did the coursework. And and um, no, then now, it's, I, now it really sounds like something I'd like to study. Being yeah. in Maui for eight months. Well, I went to a, a university that was based out of San Diego and Maui. So um, they have a campus on Maui and and uh, a beautiful retreat center there. Lovely. Then when I came back to Seattle, I well, I came to Seattle to visit my daughter. Um, she had gone to University of Washington and she lived here. So um, <clears throat> I ended up staying in Seattle. Another and great place. I got a, yeah, I got a job in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and that's where my book came out of. Gotcha. So that's, um, that's quite the path. And, and I can relate to uh, going back to school when you're not sure what what you want to do. I kind of did the same thing. Uh, I do want to talk about the book. Um, but before we go back to the book, you have this extensive background with RN and uh, MBA and PhD. Where, where did your career end up? What does it look like today? Uh, today I'm retired. <laughs> I still do some work mostly with nonviolent communication. I work uh, on Zoom a lot with clients. And um, I kind of, I just do what I want to do. 
Yeah, that sounds uh man, you you kind of you've kind of described the life I'd like to live. Really? Maui, transpersonal psychology, and now doing what you want to do. That sounds lovely. So you you mentioned you, you mentioned your book, um, and it's called Humanizing Healthcare. And and so in this book, you, you, you'll talk more about it. Um, but in this book, you you noted that caregivers kind of often fall short of their potential, and then you offered a solution, uh, which is shifting the language used by these caregivers. And and um, so I, I do want to talk about the solution, but first kind of walk me through the circumstances that inspired you to write this book. Well, that was uh, the first book I wrote, and then I wrote a couple of books called Choose Your Words. They're both called Choose Your Words, and the, those are workbooks. So the main book that I wrote was Humanizing Healthcare. And um, I started writing it when I worked at the psychiatric hospital when I got back from Maui. And you have to understand when I was in Maui, I was like learning to chill after mm -hmm. being, a, being a nurse and a high powered driven person for most of my life. And Maui, my, one of my great tasks was to just learn to chill out and relax. And so I did that. And then I came back to the mainland and got back into the um, midstream. And uh, it was probably the worst place to work in the world. Uh, they, they couldn't keep staff. There was high staff turnovers. They took care of the sickest psychiatric patients in three states. And um, they used very archaic measures to control. It was all about power and control. <clears throat> so it was totally opposite of what I had been experiencing, chilling in Maui. <clears throat> So I thought, well, I can either get a new job or uh, I can try to make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> um, so I decided to hang in there for a while. I needed to figure out a project for my uh, PhD program, and I decided to write a book about the experience. So I, I recorded uh, the day-to-day -day experiences of, um, that I had in the psychiatric hospital, and I contrasted them with uh, nonviolent principles. And basically, that's what the book is about. And it's, it's kind of fun to read because uh, it tells little short stories uh, about things that actually happened. So um, give me an illustration or two of, huh? of give me an illustration or two of, of some of those things that happened in that in that particular hospital at that time. Uh, well, in, in psychiatric, this was uh, I, I worked on the. Um, ICU ward in psychiatric. And so they sent people there that were basically out of control. And the way the staff did dealt with them was to put them in restraints and drug them. Hmm. And I wanted to do something differently. I would really want to, to treat them humanely. I wanted to be able to listen to them. And whenever I would have a patients, my patients would uh, be pretty good, you know, whereas before they would be acting out and then I would have them and they would chill out uh, because I would speak to them with respect and use nonviolent communication tools and they would uh, deescalate. And then I'd go to dinner and I'd come back and the staff had put my patients in restraints. You know, it was like the only tool they knew uh, how to use uh, power and uh, power over and domination. Oh. So um, it was a struggle, uh, but that's the kind, that's what the unit was all about. It wasn't until after my book was published, it showed up at a, a psychiatric convention and my boss, who was really, really into the violence, um, ended up at this conference hearing about my book. She didn't even know I'd, I was writing a book. And uh, after that, the unit started changing a little bit. So it became less violent and um, more peaceful and just a better place to be. Wow. It, it sounds like um, a scene out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Um, do you think that the, those types of things are still happening today? Um, I think that the country has evolved a little bit since that time. Um, you know, the psychiatric hospitals kind of go through these stages. I mean... In the old days, they used to do um, psychiatry and counseling with these patients, and then drugs became very uh, popular, and 
and use of restraints. But what happened was, you know, there's some people who died in restraints and um, the uh, accrediting body kind of frowned on these episodes and they started to record, you know, the hours the patient spent in restraints in a particular unit and seclusion and and they um and they they you know it was kind of like a bad mark if you had too many patients in restraints for too long so because of that i think the unit started to change and and try to use less restraints try to find some new tools um <clears throat> you know try to educate the staff a little yeah. although they never hired me <clears throat> but some some units did use nonviolent communication with very remarkable success. That's wonderful. Um, you you keep you keep using this term nonviolent communication, and and it's really more than just a just a descriptive term of art, right? This is a this is a defined modality. I mean, there's like the Center for Nonviolent Communication. There's nonviolent communication trainers and workshops, and you know NVC is a is a known acronym. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. What what makes uh, communication nonviolent communication? What are the components of of NVC? Yeah, nonviolent communication was created by Dr. Marsha Rosenberg. It's been about forty or fifty years uh, in the nineteen sixties. Anyway, is when when he started training, and it has evolved over the years. Um, but basically, the components of nonviolent communication are empathy and honesty. And there are certain steps to take. And everybody has a different idea about what is empathy and what is honesty. And uh, nonviolent communication has a specific uh, ideology when they use those terms. Hmm. Like, for instance, empathy is actually listen to the feelings and needs that a patient is expressing. Now, some people think that empathy is, they get it mixed up with sympathy. You know, they think that it's about being nice. Mm -hmm. And uh, in nonviolent communication, it's not about being nice. It's about being real. It's about really just hearing what the person is saying underneath their their language that they are, their habitual language, basically. Gotcha. So you're you're not listening to the word. Well, obviously, you have to listen to the words, but um, you're looking more for the feelings that underlie those words, the sentiment that's that's there, that's conveyed through body language and expression and, and everything like this, right? Yeah, the feelings and the needs. Hmm. The needs are, you know, kind of vague. They're not stated, but um, they're part of the, they're kind of the core of our humanity. All humans have the same needs. So, um if we in, could, in a, if we could narrow down those needs, you said they're, they're the core of all of all of humanity. What would that bundle of needs look like? Like er, everyone in the world has the same needs. Like everybody in the world wants to be safe. Safety mm -hmm. is a need. Everybody wants um, to be respected. So mm -hmm. respect is a need. Everyone um, wants appreciation. So appreciation is a need. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs wants connection. You know, it's like. Mm -hmm. People need each other, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, we're social so creatures. Need, yeah, there's need for connection. There's need for really an interdependence, and uh, there's also a need for independence. But I think along the road of becoming independent, um, after you find out that you really do need other people, um, so I think you're yeah you're healthier if you have other people in your lives. Absolutely. Uh, and especially with psych patients, it's um, a lot of times that people end up in the hospital because they, they're very isolated and they don't have uh, enough resources and other people in their lives to, to create a sense of wellness. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I noticed that with myself. If I, if I spend too much time alone, I start to feel a little bit um, a little bit crazy myself. Um, yeah. they say that, you know, my people will say that your mind is a, is a, a bad neighborhood and it's not safe <laughs> to go into alone. And I can relate to that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so empathy and honesty, uh, are, are there other yeah. components? Um, oh, there's all kinds of components of it, but those are the main things, you know, the, the honesty is the, using the four steps in nonviolent communication. Like if you're going to express honesty, 
Um, some people think expressing honesty is about uh, expressing your judgments, you know, like you're an idiot. See, I'm just being honest. Uh, <laughs> but nonviolent communication encourages us to look under our own judgments. So if we're thinking somebody's being an idiot, underneath that judgment are feelings and needs. So I'm thinking, so maybe I'm feeling annoyed because I, I need, um, I need respect. So instead of saying you're an idiot, we use the components of nonviolent communication to make it clear what we're talking about. So when you tell me that I'm doing that wrong, I feel annoyed because I, I need to be treated with respect. Um, and the last component would be asking a request like, what are you hearing me say? Or how do you feel when you hear me say that? That would be connecting requests. So there's basically four steps in expressing honesty, observation, feeling, need, and request. Observation, feeling. So when I see you do something, I feel a certain way, and, um, and, and that feeling creates a certain need in me, and I would like you to do X, Y, or Z to help satisfy that need. Is that the Almost. Formula? It's actually the feeling's not causing the need. The need is causing the feeling. Hmm, okay. So the, the feeling tells us that there's a need inside of us that's being met or not being met. Even though the need is after the feeling, it, it, the need is actually the cause of the feeling. Or some other things cause feelings, like our thoughts can cause feelings too. So um, yeah, it's about, so expressing honesty is really about a high level of awareness, expressing honesty in nonviolent communication. Hmm. It's not an easy thing to do. No. Uh -uh. And you, and at first I, I was conceptualizing it as looking solely at what the other person's needs are, but you mm -hmm. have to examine your own needs and how that interplays with the other person's needs. And there's something that happens in the middle there that you have to be honest about, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you have choices. Like when I work in the psyche unit, I, you know, I seldom express my, um, my honesty because patients are in there. Uh, basically, I say their needs are on the table. Um, and they're, one of their biggest needs is for empathy. You know, they're, they're in the psych hospital because of a problem. And so mostly when I'm working in that unit, I focused my energy on empathy, on trying to hear what's going on for them. I mean, I definitely, I'd, I'd seldom say something like, you know, when you bang on the wall, I feel annoyed, you know, because I want... I want uh, you to take care of the property or take care, <laughs> you know. So I, I probably wouldn't say that because that would escalate them more. Mm -hmm. And by focusing on their feelings and need, I can begin to de-escalate them um, if they're distressed or out of control. Do you have Do you have a a case study, so to speak, of uh, an example in which you, you use this, the specific story that comes to mind when you, when you talk about using nonviolent communication to deescalate a situation? Uh, there's uh, examples in my book. Um, I'm trying to think if one's specifically geared on deescalation. Um, yeah, I mean, I could read an excerpt if you want. Sure, that'd be great. This is at the back of the book. Um, so one evening upon arriving for work, I walked past a too common scene in the hallway. A nurse was standing in the hallway outside a patient's door, yelling the repeated demand, go sit on your bed. Meanwhile, the patient was banging on the other side of the door and insisting that she wanted to come out. The situation appeared to be locked in a classic stalemate born of unmet control needs. I looked in the small cell-like window and said, hi, Mary, go sit on your bed. I want to come in and talk with you. When Mary saw me, her face lit up and she ran over and sat on her bed. The nurse standing at the door said, that's amazing. How did you do that? I had no magic potion, no pills or tricks. However, I had worked with the patient the week before and using the tools of NVC had created a nurturing connection with her. The patient was not willing to submit to the demands of a staff member with whom she did not feel a connection, yet she willingly cooperated when treated with respect and compassion. Empathy is one of the simplest yet most potent human technologies on the planet. 
It is low-cost, high-yield solution that everyone can use. Most of all, it is nothing you need to add to your systems. It is already part of who you are as human beings. It is your birthright. If only you can create organizations that support you and using your humanity as a tool for connection and healing. So um, anyway, that's that's one example of when I use the tools with the patient. No, that's fantastic. Um, is so I mean you you had you had kind of an extensive background in uh, studying spirituality, emotions, the human psyche, uh, all these things, and and, and so um, NVC kind of seems aligned with all of that. Is is NVC uh, more intuitive for you than others? Is or is anybody? Uh, are we all on the on equal? equal footing here? Well, I think the more personal work you do, the more inner work you do, the easier it is for you. Um, but it's a very practical tool. I mean, men like it just as well as women, even though it talks about feelings. And uh, But men, you know, kind of have different tasks often with women. Some of my male clients have been kind of socialized to be disconnected from their feelings. So one of their tasks in nonviolent communication is to become reacquainted with their feelings, to begin to feel their feelings in their bodies. Whereas I find that women become disconnected with their needs. Um, they're so used to giving up their needs and taking care of the needs of everyone else that they don't know what needs are driving them, what needs are contributing to their feelings. So women use, usually end up having to learn the language of needs and men kind of already know the language of needs. They've kind of been socialized to be powerful in their speech and, and to say, I need, you know, cooperation, you know, or whatever the need is. They're, they're not shy about expressing their needs. Um, but it, everyone can benefit it, it, you know, in one way or another, um, wherever you are on your journey. Uh, NVC gives us tools that we can go pretty deep with our psyches and do some pretty serious healing. Hmm. That's, that's, that's fantastic. I wonder if the tides are turning a little bit. You talk about uh, the stereotypical uh, roles that men play and that women play and men are, um, men know their needs and women know their feelings. And, and we've all heard that it's kind of like the classic stereotype. And, and I just, I just wonder if, um, as we're progressing as a society, I wonder if those if those uh, stereotypes are softening a little bit. If uh, if men are becoming more attuned with their feelings, as um, as as kind of we're um, faced with the stereotype, and if uh, women are um, becoming uh, more apt at, at identifying their needs, I wonder if that's if that's turning at all. I think it is, you know, from what I understand and what I read and notice with people, you know, I definitely think it is. I think women are becoming more empowered, um, not as much as I'd like, you know, most businesses are still run by men, but, um, <clears throat> yeah. and, uh, yeah, men, some men are becoming more attuned to their feelings and, you know, that's always welcome. Yeah. Having three daughters, I, I sure hope that, uh, women continue to, grow more empowered. Um, I would love that for my kids. So, yeah. so you've been a, you've been a certified, uh, NVC trainer for what, 30 years, nearly 30 yeah, years. Something about that. <laughs> in, in what context then over the years have you implemented nonviolent communication? Um, well, a lot of it just flowed with, with my life, trying to get my needs met in this society. Um, I've done a lot of things. I've spoken at a lot of conferences. Uh, I've worked with businesses and individuals and couples and groups. Uh, I've used it in my own relationships and um, I've used it at work. Um, Pretty much know, everywhere, huh? It. Yeah, it, it where, kind, wherever I was. <laughs> it kind of becomes a part of you. So, yeah. so many of my listeners um, work in skilled nursing facilities. I've had I've had a number of administrators on the show, and um, and so that so a lot of my audience is is in that arena. Um, so, let's say 
I am an administrator for a skilled nursing facility, and I and I come to you as a consultant, and um, I, I say, hey, COVID has kind of put everything in disarray. Um, families want unrestricted visitation, and for a while we had to lock down visitation, and now we're now we're able to let people visit, but we might not be able to in in the near future and in, you know, I am short on staff. I have a staffing problem because um, sometimes it, it works out better for my employees to uh, get unemployment than it does to, to work and there's a nursing shortage and um, it's just a tough time right now and I need, I need your help as a nonviolent communication consultant. Where would you start with something like that? <coughs> Well, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the staffing shortage occurs because the environment can be rather toxic to work in. Like uh, in Mendota Medical Center, a friend of mine implemented nonviolent communication is in the most restricted unit in Mendota Medical Center. And um, so she had everyone speaking nonviolent communication and that her unit, they couldn't keep staff. There was constant turnover, uh, no one wanted to work there. There was a real staff shortage. After she, everybody started teaching NVC, the patients actually started getting better. And these were like chronic patients that were supposed to never get better. They started getting better. They were moved to less restrictive units and staff started to want to work on her unit. And pretty soon she had, um, she was fully staffed. So um, I think a lot of it depends on the environment that you build for people. If it's a good environment to work, you're going to have less, less staff turnover and uh, people are going to enjoy working, enjoying working there more. So um, that's, that's one thing I would recommend is really looking at the environment. You know, how are you treating your staff members? How are you meeting their needs? Um, what, what is the atmosphere like on this unit? Mm-hmm. You really do want to make it as much of a work family as possible. I know that's kind of a kind of a cliche term, but um, yeah. you, you really want to have that those connections, uh, particularly when you really enjoy your your staff and you really enjoy the people you work with and you want them to stay. Um, you know, I kind of have that right now with uh, with the group of people that work with me and for me and um I, i'd like it to i'd like it to stay that way and so uh we kind of try to make it as much like a family as possible uh-huh that sounds really nice yeah um so you've you've mentioned that you've worked with lots of people and businesses and and um i'm sure that over the last couple of years and even preceding that you know going back forever really um, you've, you've worked with folks who have experienced burnout and, and now I mean, we're identifying it as maybe COVID fatigue and, and things like this, but it's been around forever. People, uh, get tired of, of the same thing. They get tired of the grind. Um, and, and they just don't like doing what they're doing anymore. Um, and, and, and you are in a position to help these people with these types of issues. Um, but being in that position, do you experience th that burnout yourself? Do you, do you ever feel like it's hard to, to be there for others in this capacity? Well, working as a RN for 35 years, I definitely had burnout in the latter years of my career. And, um, I, it exhibits itself just by, um, being fatigued. I had extreme fatigue. And then in the last half year that I worked, I would get a headache every time I'd go into work. Um, I still enjoyed a lot of aspects of the job. I, I, at this point, I was working in a voluntary psychiatric unit and I enjoyed, uh, I would do an MVC group there every shift I worked. And um, I enjoyed talking to the patients with empathy because they they had uh, a lot of potential. Uh, they were voluntary, which is kind of a good sign because um, they would, instead of the other kind of psychiatric units, involuntary, they don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. So at least involuntary, you have some choice and some 
um, consciousness to, um, to try to heal. Um, so even though I enjoyed the aspects of it, I was really tired of taking care of people. And um, I was just, because the system was so unsupported to me, I think that just made it so much worse. I think that's, you know, if the system had been more supported from the get-go, I don't know that I would have suffered such a burnout, but it was also a conflict uh, between my inner world and and what the the system was showing me. Um, I had kind of different. Uh, I was there wasn't a congruence between my inner values and the units I worked on and how they treated people, and um, that caused more burnout than anything. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. And so, so what do you do uh, to to remedy this? Well, I, you know, wrote a book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I try to change systems, you know, because uh, I'd like to see the systems be more supportive of people. People were not that enamored with what I was doing. You know, they didn't understand it, that I was compassionate with these people and not putting them in restraints. They didn't, they didn't get what I was doing and they didn't attributed the outcome to what I had done. They attributed to, to medications or something. Like I had one, one patient that used to, uh, she was a morbidly obese woman. She used to lie on the floor and the nurse would have to call the lift team to come get her off the floor. Cause no one could get, could lift her. And then I had her and the patient didn't lie on the floor. She, you know, did what I asked her to do. And the nurses go, oh, the meds must be kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating to me that, that, that this, is, this was so revolutionary um, because nowadays, at least in my world, um, being honest and empathetic, it, it kind of seems intuitive. Um, it, it, seems, it seems, for lack of better words, obvious that those things would improve uh, relationships and improve outcomes. Uh, and, and so the idea that it was, it was revolutionary, um, it's, uh, it's out of context for me. Uh, that's fast. So, so what year, what year was this? Well, my book was published in 2011. So it was probably from the year that I worked in the unit 2004 to, <clears throat> well, when I retired, but yeah, it was revolution and even in, two, in 2011. At that point, it was starting to change, I think, a little bit. But um, just thinking that being kind and compassionate to people and trying to meet their needs is, is a revolution. Uh, you know, I was a revolutionary of one in that unit because, you know, people, people thought that I was weak because I didn't tie people up, you know. The, there was one nurse who would come to work and, and uh, she was the most popular nurse because she would like, she, she was so violent to the patients instead of like, she would, she would sh- uh, give them shots through their clothes instead of like pulling their clothing down, which is really dangerous yeah. to do and traumatic, you know, but everybody loved her. Wow. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it is mind boggling to think that such a human innate characteristic could be seen as revolutionary. Yeah. It's really a sad referendum on the state of society. Um, yes. Where kindness can be seen as, as weakness and, and honesty and empathy can be seen as uh, inept or ineffective. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for your work because um, the, the things uh, again, at least in at least in my through my perspective, through my lens of the world, um, have changed. But you know, I'm sure that, I'm sure that perspective plays a huge part in that. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would say otherwise. Yeah, I was like the lone. Uh, we call it giraffe nonviolent communication. We often call giraffe language because giraffes have one of the biggest hearts of any land animals, and they're tall, so they can see in the distance. Um, so I was like a lone giraffe and we call the, the uh, people with habitual language of judgments, blame, analysis, um, criticism, we call the, them jackals, jackal language. Hmm. Um, so I was the lone giraffe in the midst of jackals and uh, 
you know, some of the, sometimes there was a real jackal feast going on. <laughs> it, it, jackal feast. It sounds, it sounds like, uh, to, to be, to be effective at nonviolent communication, you really have to learn to sometimes set aside the, the logical part of your mind, the analytical part of your mind, the part of the part of your mind that, that we are, are oftentimes, um, trained in, you know, and we're uh, applauded for and awarded for, you know, you, you have to set that, set all that aside. I don't know. I, um, I think using nonviolent communication, uh, really requires you to, to think, you know, like, especially if you're like going to make a clear observation, you know, to usually what happens is people see something it kind of goes through their mental filters. It comes out on the other side as a judgment or an analysis or something. So nonviolent communication, it requires more mental work. You see something. And then when you speak, you want to speak to what's really there instead of what goes through your filters. So instead of saying that guy's acting like a jerk, you say, when, when that man kicked the car, that would be the observation. Some people think the observation is that man's a jerk. That's the conclusion. That's not an observation. Though, right. Yeah. You that, know, so it really takes um, a little bit of uh, mental work to get a clear observation. Yeah. And then to figure out the feeling and the need and the request. The request takes, you know, a lot of mental work to figure out what do you want back about what you're saying? What is the highest degree of self responsibility that you're expressing? And what do you want back from the other person? Mm. Yeah, I can see that that would take a little bit of effort, a lot of bit of effort. In fact, here here is my here was my introduction to nonviolent communication. I I was at a retreat of sorts, and I I met a gentleman there, um, and and um, when I you know we everybody exchanged phone numbers and emails and all these things, thinking that. We'd remain in close contact. Of course, we didn't, but um, <laughs> but I did get an email from him shortly after I got home, and and there was a it said click here, and so I was kind of concerned about it being spam, but yeah. I I took the risk and I clicked, and it was a video, and it was him talking, and and he was he was talking to me, but I could tell that you know the introduction was kind of a he he. Probably used the same video for a lot, lot of people, but changed the introduction. So I said, "Hi, Tyler," and then uh, he proceeded to say that he was a nonviolent communication trainer, and he invited me to a free workshop. And then that was kind of, I, I kind of got the I got the sense that the free workshop was kind of a like kind of like a loss leader for his day long workshop, and and so I kind of took it as a marketing pitch, and that was. And I, and I didn't respond because I, I thought I was, you know, for whatever reason, I, I, I didn't use nonviolent communication. I used my judgment and thought, ah, oh, that guy's using my personal email address to give me a marketing sales pitch. And so yeah. I, I just jumped to conclusions, I suppose, and, and, and uh, didn't respond. What would that have looked like? What does a nonviolent communication w workshop look like? Because I, I do have his email in my inbox. I can always go back and respond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so many different kinds. You know, there, um, there's anything from a practice support group to uh, a nine-day or an 11-day international intensive training. So um, it just it depends on what the trainer likes to do, um, where the venue is, if it's online or if it's at a retreat center. Uh, there, so they're all different. It, it kind of depends on what your interests are too. You know, it, there are all kinds of trainers out there and they have different focuses. You know, like my focus is gonna be different from other trainers. So hmm. people that are kind of attracted to, to kind of my slant on it will come to my workshops mm -hmm. versus people that, you know, can't stand me. They, <laughs> they wouldn't wanna to come to my workshop. So I don't know if you wanna mention the trainers and I probably shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I don't know what I don't know what his slant is, but you could certainly have a conversation about it. Mostly, I would um, I'd recommend that people get as much NVC training from as many different trainers as possible when they're learning the process. 
you know, when I when I was learning it, I went to uh, one trainer who was very good at empathy and kind of the therapeutic aspect of it. Um, and then I went to another trainer who used to be a teacher and she had all these great posters and, and uh, you know, and I went to Marshall. I was so lucky that, you know, at the time when I was learning nonviolent communication in the early 90s, Marshall was, hadn't gotten big yet, you know, and he had, he had a lot of time and I got to go to many workshops with him and had some private sessions with him also. Um, but then he started getting really popular after he wrote his book. So um, I didn't get as much individual attention. Hmm. But, you know, I, I attribute much, much of my healing journey to, to Marshall and being able to go to those workshops. So, yeah, I'd recommend um, taking as much training as possible. And if the guy's a certified trainer, he probably has something good to say. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. All right. So I, I do like that, that there's some leeway there. It's not, it's not a, a total indoctrination where every trainer has to say the same things and give the same exact courses. And because there are some modalities where it's very specific and very scripted as, you know, as to the, lear- the learning process. Mm. Um, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Okay. Uh, I'm ready. I was reading uh, one of your bios, and it was it was it appeared to be an older bio when I compared it to other ones, and um, and, it, and it says uh, you're an instructor at the school of Tantra. Oh, Tantra, yeah, yeah. When I lived on Maui. Tell me about that. Um, my um, well, I was staying in this community, and the the people that. <clears throat> basically a head head honchos of the community. Was it Hana? Huh? Was it Hana? It wasn't in Hana. It was in um, Wailuku. Okay. And everybody on Maui teaches Tantra. So <laughs> it's not a big thing. But anyway, they ran a school of Tantra and, uh, and they had, they had workshops all the time in Tantra. It was really, it was fun. Yeah. So what, what's the basic premise of Tantra? I think it's about <clears throat> connection and healing and um, kind of normalizing sexuality and learning how to get your needs met in a respectful way and um, just learning some tools of how to connect with each other. Like one of their tools is to to be able to look in each other's eyes and to match your breasts with each other. And that creates a certain kind of electrical connection between two people. You know, it really does. I've, I have, uh, I have practiced that and it, it really does. There's something to that. And it's surprising how, um, how, how vulnerable you can feel when you do that, even with, you know, I'm saying you, but even with my spouse, it's like, like when I, when I, when I do that practice, it makes me realize how, infrequently I actually you know, pay total attention to her. Um, and, and there's something very vulnerable and intimate about just staring in the eyes and looking in each other's eyes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I think we're so busy, you know, no wonder people have little quickies, you know, cause they don't really take the time to, to look in each other's eyes and breathe and find out who that other person really is that they're connecting with. Yeah, you know, I mean, and now I'm, I'm just going to get esoteric here and get kind of weird. But when when you do that, it almost feels like like there's something I, f- I feel like my my soul or my my consciousness or my spirit or whatever you want to call it is bigger than my body. I kind of feel like there's a connection happening between us outside of my body, but I can almost feel it there. Cool. that sounds that sounds lovely. Yeah, I, I know that's just my my experience, but, hmm. um, before I get any stranger, uh, any, <laughs> anything that you'd like to promote or any parting words of wisdom before we adjourn? Well, I would like to just say something about Robert Whitaker. He wrote a book about, um, it's called anatomy of an epidemic. Have you read that? I have not. No. Um, Robert Whitaker was a journalist and he went all over the world studying psychiatric systems in the different countries. Okay. <clears throat> 
And um, one of the countries he visited was uh, West, Western Lapland. And at one time, Western Lapland had the highest rate of schizophrenia in all of Europe. And what happened is it was bankrupting the country because what happens, I mean, their, their system was much like ours, you know, and a patient would get diagnosed with a mental illness and then they would become disabled and they would be placed on disability for the rest of their life and the state would have to support them and they wouldn't be able to work or do anything. So um, what they did, they started training groups of people in, um, something called open dialogue therapy. It sounds a lot like nonviolent communication to me. Hmm. And they closed down most of the psychiatric units. And whenever anybody started having a break, um, a psychiatric break, the family would call these groups of people that had been trained in open dialogue therapy to come. So the people would go into the home of the person exhibiting symptoms and they would um, reconnect the patient with his family, or they bring in the boss, reconnect the patient with his boss, you know, or um, whatever needed to be done. This, the, these people that have been trained in, in open dialogue therapy would, would work on with this patient. So it turned out that um, the country saved so much money doing this and only um, 20% of patients after this had to take any kind of medications. The 80% that had been seen were able to go back to work or go back to school and became productive members of society again. So there was really healing happening. Um, were med was medication involved? Only 20% was on medication. Oh, so right. they did still you have to use medication in some cases but it's much less than they had used it before. That's astounding. Yeah, I just, I just love that story, you know, and just, you know, to see what could be done if our reliance on the medication system um, could be shifted, that we could really help people get reintegrated back into the culture. Because, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of this, you know, we have a need for inter interdependence, um, and when we can reestablish those connections with people, uh, it makes us feel, it makes us better. It, it makes us does. more well. It truly does. And it's a two-way street. So I'll ask probably an unanswerable question, but um, so you're work, let's, let's say I'm working in a psychiatric unit um, and, and I practice nonviolent communication with, with somebody who, um, is has been admitted invol involuntarily, and and through that communication, this person feels seen and heard and loved, and um, starts to normalize and stabilize. Well, he or she leaves, and he you know is, is back on the street or back in the you know the, his apartment or home, and there's nobody there to to listen to him anymore. So how does I mean, how, how how does it become a lasting pro, lasting solution? Does it when somebody feels that connection? I mean, what do they do when they don't have anybody who they can practice just regular communication with? It's a problem, you know. If the patient learns the tools and is able to use some of the tools on his own, then he can he has some hope of um, staying stable. Um, or if he gets referrals for the limited amount of programs that are out there, because you know we just don't spend much money on mental health in this country, um, then that can help keep them stable. Um, so, uh, especially if the person can, you know, I have a friend who has a DID, a dissociative identity disorder, but you know she stays pretty well because <clears throat> she's really good at reaching out and asking for what she wants. Hmm. And so uh, she actually reached out to me about four years ago and, and asked me if I would just give her some empathy. Um, hmm. She didn't have any money, you know, but I, I wasn't doing anything. So I said, sure. So every once in a while, you know, she calls and I give her some empathy hmm. and she stays pretty, um, she stays pretty stable. 
Yeah. You know, she has me as a support and she's able to reach out and, and get support from other people also. Good for her. You know, yeah. it really makes me, it really gives me pause to reflect on some of the things I just take for granted. And, you know, I have a whole network of people that would listen to me and would help me. Um, and I would do the same for them. But it, it's really sad to think that there are so many people out there that just don't have that they can't they can't even meet their basic need of connection uh, they don't have anybody to, to really talk to it's really sad yeah and we're not taught to reach out and ask for that either no we have shame about being depressed or having those kind of feelings having negative feelings so we don't want to reach out and expose ourselves for fear that we're going to be judged isn't it backwards? I mean, I don't think there's a person on the planet who hasn't felt bad or depressed or down or had negative thoughts. Yet when we do, it's our mind tells us, oh, we shouldn't have that. It's like we, we put these expect, expectations on ourselves to be 100% perfect when it comes to mental capacity and emotions. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't expect our physical bodies to be to uh, we wouldn't demand perfection of our physical bodies we wouldn't expect to go climb, climb mount everest in one day but yet whenever we have one thought of doubt or depression or negative thought we, we we kind of feel like oh that shouldn't happen and then we shame ourselves and then it's this downward spiral uh, mm. we have placed such high expectations on ourselves it's mm, a good point i digressed um, i asked for your your parting words of wisdom and you talked about uh, Robert Whitaker's book, and then we went on the on to, went down this road. So, um, I've I've appreciated your time, and um, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Well Beings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.